Hey everybody, I just want to take a moment to talk about a new thing I'm doing. Over the years, many of you have reached out to me telling me how much you love the podcast, but also wish there were more personalized takeaways and more in-depth interactions with our guests to hear what they think about comedy. This is why I'm now launching my new digital academy, Blueprint for Success. With exclusive interviews and comedy philosophies of stars and industry veterans, personalized versions of the Industry Standard podcast, commercial-free, and one-on-one coaching time with me. Blueprint for Success will give you the powerful tools that will take you up the elevator beyond the competition and reach the highest possible levels to achieve your dreams. Whether it be stand-up, sketch, improv, acting, writing, producing, directing, hosting, radio podcasting, social media influencing, or even if you want a career behind the scenes as a manager or an agent. Now I'm here to help, personally. We'll go on an express train of comedy and entertainment like nobody else has before. You can find out more about Blueprint for Success and the comedy business on my website at barrycats.com. Together, we'll take your career where you want it to go. You are about to listen to an original episode of Industry Standard with Barry Katz. If you'd like more info on our schedule of upcoming shows, which will be available for download every Monday, or how to reach Barry through Twitter, Facebook, or email, go to barrykatz.com. After you finish the podcast, please take a moment to subscribe to it, leave a comment, and rate it, even if you think it sucks. Thank you for your support, and enjoy the show. Okay, welcome to another episode of Industry Standard. Uh, my guest today, David Hill, who is an unbelievable trailblazer and uh, executive for Fox, who is, I would consider to be the number two guy under Rupert Murdoch. We're going to talk a little bit about that. And uh, worked his way up through the business uh uh, in such a unique and special way and has been uh, so instrumental in so many things. But as usual, what I normally do is I normally tell a story up front that sort of relates in some unique way from a sixth degree of separation with the guest. And one t- all the time when I start these podcasts, I, I sometimes I really never know what story I'm going to tell. But the one that comes to mind right now is I remember... Um, I had an office in New York at 57th and Broadway across from the old Coliseum books and where the Hard Rock Cafe uh, was underneath. And I had a habit of working really late in the office and I would always get submissions of comedians and tapes of comedians. And how I decided on somebody who I thought had star quality or had something special, believe it or not, it was this weird thing where I would pop this videotape, back then it was VHS tape, into my uh, VCR and I would turn the sound down and I would just watch the first minute or two of the person on stage and if I saw something that sort of made me laugh or engaged me, I would, um, I would turn up the volume and then rewind. So one time at around midnight, I'm, you know, I always looked at my tapes late at night, 
uh, there was this one tape that I popped in, and it was a comedian from somewhere in uh, Wisconsin or some area that way out in in the boondocks, wherever it might have been. Uh, I can't even remember now. How horrible is that? And uh, it was a comedian against a brick wall, and he had this baby face, and he was kind of like this little chubby kind of guy making all these expressions and faces, and and which is normally not necessarily what many purists or comedians would say would be a cerebral way to make people laugh. But I turned it on, and this guy did some of the most amazing impressions that I, I'd ever seen or heard in my life, yet he was like a baby. He looked like he was like 21 years old. And all that was written on the tape was his name and his phone number. And I called up the number, and he picked up the phone. It must have been like 1 or 2 o'clock in the morning where he was. And I told him that I wanted to represent him. I thought he was amazing. And if he could come out to Los Angeles and meet me. And um, he was referred to me by a client of mine uh, named Phil Tag, who had uh, he'd opened up for him. And he'd done such an amazing job. So he came out here. I remember I was living on Venice Beach in a one-bedroom apartment that uh, basically where I had to listen to some guy singing the song Bombaleo seven times a day. Uh, this horrible area. <laughs> but I love the beach. And uh, I met with this young uh, comedian whose name was Frank Caliendo. And I made an agreement and I said, listen, Frank... If I can't get you something going in 48 hours in this town, go back to where you are in Milwaukee or wherever and fire my ass. I will make shit happen for you. I sent this tape out to a bunch of places and messengered it out, and I got a meeting immediately with a few different places. One of them was uh, the Warner Brothers Network. I set up a meeting with the casting director there. Her name was Kathleen Lettery. He went in. I got a call. It's a speakerphone call. All of the executives and the whole company and the assistants were in this huge open area. Barry, Frank is still here. He's been doing impressions all the time here for everybody here because I had worked with him on something called the Five Minutes of Fury, which was something where he would stand up in a meeting and do 50 impressions in five minutes. So I get a $200,000 development deal for Frank Caliendo and Warner Brothers. And I'm thinking to myself, this is just amazing. Things are great. And then I hear through the grapevine, Jimmy Kimmel, who I'm friendly with, Barry, I'm leaving the show. I'm leaving the football show, the Fox football show. I want to do other things. I thought, holy shit, I know that Caliendo would be great for this. Imagine the impressions and the things we could do. So I called uh, George Greenberg. I called Scott Ackerman, who works with you and who have executive produced so many shows with you. And I was very persistent. I didn't know them. I would call them every day. And finally they said, okay, Barry, we'll meet him. I remember setting up a meeting with Frank there. And... He had just started doing something that was really amazing, which was a John Madden impression that was so incredible and so powerful. 
and we go into the meeting, and if ever you're an artist listening, one of the most daunting things when you go into a meeting, into a place where you really are not familiar, which is sports, is when you look over on the coffee table, the side tables, the floor, and there are stacks of videotapes or DVDs, then it was videotapes, of every different artist you can imagine who's ever done segments or hosted a show, and every major agency, CAA, William Morris, Endeavor, UTA, every, all these tapes all over, left all around the office, of all the submissions of the people that you're competing with. But Frank was a guy, he had no fear. He just had this thing where he had this gut, gut instinct of how to go for it, and whatever happened to him in his childhood, I don't know if his, you know, somebody touched him in a sandbox when he was four. Whatever it was that happened, he had this power, this strength, this no fear. But there's also this darkness about him when he wasn't on. But you put him in front of somebody and he was on. And he went at it and he did these impressions and he did the five minutes of fury for these two guys. And it was an incredible meeting. And I thought the meeting was ending. But the meeting didn't end because Scott Ackerson got up and he said, just, uh, I'll be right back in a second. And in walks this man who looks like an Australian Barney Rubble, who I had no idea who he was. And it was David Hill. And I am David Hill. I work with these you know, guys or whatever. And he sat down and he said, you know how you doing mate or whatever it was and Frank Caliendo immediately started mimicking you and doing an impression of you in the room and then they asked him to do the five minutes of fury again and he got up again right in a room with three guys and did the five minutes with 50 impressions again and just you were like I never seen a man of your stature or your importance laughed that hard in my life. I mean, it was like you were like doubled over and you were even redder than you are now, which is quite impossible. <laughs> and after the meeting was over, like literally the next day I got the call, Barry, um, we're going to make the deal with Frank. He's going to be our guy. And, and, and truly with all odds against him, and the most underdog of underdogs. Nobody knew who the fuck this guy was. But he went in and he did what everybody has to do, not just in sports or any artistic business. You have to go in and you have to take down number one, which we're going to talk a lot about. The little tiny second part of this uh, story is he did a lot of John Madden unbelievable parodies of John Madden on the Fox NFL football show. And John Madden was like the 800-pound gorilla there. I mean, he was the man. I mean, you didn't do anything to mess with John Madden. As a matter of fact, our guest today is going to talk about something that he brought up to John Madden that John Madden was against that became one of the most groundbreaking things in the NFL today. So... Frank would do these impressions and word through the grapevine was, you know, you'd get calls, you know, could you lay off the John Madden a little bit, whatever, but they never would say 
anything like incriminate John because they were afraid it would get back to John. So they had to figure out a way to get Frank to do a little bit less John Madden or whatever, even though it was the most requested thing. And I didn't really understand what was going on until I was at a Super Bowl one time because David Hill and his people had helped me out and gotten me tickets and I was with Frank and he was doing a segment. And I'm sitting down in a green room and um, just sitting at a table, minding my own business. And I feel somebody sit down next to me. It was like a heavy sit, you know, the kind of sit where somebody sits down and you can feel like the earth move. And I look over and it's John Madden. I've never been next to John Madden before. I've never met John Madden before. I take the opportunity, I say, hey, uh, Mr. Madden, uh, my name's Barry Katz. Um, it's nice to meet you. And I can't do the impression of John, but he was very curt. He was like, yeah, okay, uh, nice to meet you. And I'm sitting there, we're sitting next to each other, we're not saying anything, and I don't know what came over me. But I said, John, uh, you might not know me, but um, you know, I represent uh, Frank Caliendo, you know, the the guy who uh, does the impression of you. And he looked over at me with a look that would like kill. And he said, I don't like it. I don't like it at all. Tell him I don't like it. I, I said, okay, Mr. Madden. And then all of a sudden, two men who looked like Howie Long, only on more steroids and some kind of uh, enhancers, stood up next to me and tapped me on the shoulder and said, Mr. Katz, could you please stand up, please? I'm like, uh, yeah, yeah, what, uh, everything okay? Uh, yeah, you're going to have to leave. I, I, don't, I don't understand. I'm just sitting down here next to my friend, uh, John, Matt, Mr. Katz. Please come with us. And that's when I realized that John Madden had a lot of power. Hey everybody, let me remind you one more time about my new blueprint for success. It's a project I've spent months and months working on just to help you jumpstart your comedy career and beat the competition. Whether you want to do stand-up, sketch, improv, acting, writing, producing, directing, radio, social media influencing, or even if you want a career behind the scenes as a manager or agent, Blueprint for Success will give you all the tools you need to take your career to the highest levels. With exclusive interviews, my top 50 commercial-free episodes from Industry Standard, one-on-one -on -one coaching with me, and unprecedented access into my knowledge and experience from over 40 years in this crazy business, I guarantee you that with Blueprint for Success, you'll become the creator you've always dreamed of becoming. No one's asking me to do this. I want to do it because I want to help you become truly undeniable. So just go to BarryCats.com, click on Blueprint for Success, and start your incredible journey today. I truly can't wait to work with you to help you change the trajectory of your comedy career forever. Here we go in three, two. We ain't one at a time in here. We're mass communicating. This show will have laughter. I got everybody pregnant with Barry Katz and semen. Infections caused by jacuzzi water. I'm not comfortable with the tone this is taking. Okay, here we go. Is there anything else I should know? You're on. What? Out of the air!
people on Twitter have been asking for Barry Katz to come back a lot. If you're undeniable, you will not be denied. If you want to be successful in show business, you get yourself a Jew white manager like Barry Katz. <laughs> Here we go. You fucking firing me up, Katz. Being a manager is just turning no's into yeses. Undeniable. Creating holy shit moments. I love this man. Barry Katz. Back in the house. 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 Let's do this. All right, everybody. This is very exciting. Um, I'm going to introduce my guest today. There are so many things to say about this man. It's arguable that out of all the podcasts I've done so far, uh, this man is probably the guy responsible for more things that make an impact on your sports uh, day or weekend or whatever you do than any other person in this country. I mean, it's incredible. He is originally from Australia. Uh, he is the senior vice president of 21st Century Fox. Um, I can't even go into how many things this guy has been involved in for 20 years or over 20 years at Fox. But suffice to say, he's been involved in the sports world where he brought Fox sports or sports to the Fox network when there was no sports at Fox and he built it into the behemoth and powerhouse it is now with such amazing, amazing decisions that he made as the, uh, I call it the sports box, uh, whatever you want to call it on top of each broadcast that shows the score. Um, he also was in charge of, uh, developing and creating the puck that glows for hockey he also was overseeing the network when Ally McBeal was uh, coming forward and Family Guy, and the network went from number four to number two while he was there and then became number one in the demo. I mean, it's just there are so many things we're going to talk about. He overseed Fuel, Speed, Fox Deportes, all these different aspects. Now, I called him to do the podcast. I said, you can do the podcast. He says, I'm out uh, with the American Idol auditions. I'm traveling the country with him. I'm like, is there anything that this guy doesn't do? And we're going to talk about all of it in this trajectory. So please, a warm welcome for my guest today, David Hill. Mr. Katz, I'm, it's a pleasure and an honor. All right. We're going to have so much fun. Uh, he came here immediately. He was shitting on my coffee table, telling me that my uh, grandmother had made the coffee table by gnawing the side with her teeth. Uh, it looks like it. It it looks like someone's grandmother. Then he came into my our office here, and he immediately. I couldn't tell if he was like being complimentary or completely, you know, uh, shitting on me. But you know, you could sort of see the city and the ocean from here. But it's a little foggy today. And he was telling me. I said, "Your office is probably ten times bigger and better than this." And and he said, "No, it's, uh, the offices were in a tiny, with tiny and and and." I've never seen an office with 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 a, a Jackson Pollock on the wall <laughs> as, as you walk in. Uh, there's a, there's and, a there's ladies a... and gentlemen out there in podcast land. If there are any, we're, we're sitting on the 433rd floor <laughs> of this luxurious office building in uh, in Beverly Hills, and we can see the ocean. We can see LAX. We can see downtown LA. We can see Dodger Stadium. It is remarkable. You can see if you actually have got good eyesight, you can see Santa Barbara. It is it is, <laughs> it is fabulous. And we're sitting. What's and, what's odd is we're sitting right in back in front of the uh, on deck circle 
for the Boston Red Sox World Series in 2007, the MLB game. And Fox was broadcasting That's that. Right. And uh, they uh, were so gracious to me, and they, they gave me wonderful seats. And, uh, of course, this year I haven't uh, asked yet, but that'll be later after the podcast is over. And he's referring to the paintings in the front. There's a comedian named Natalie Gray, uh, uh, now living in London, who uh, is incredibly talented, and she paints 3D paintings, which I've never seen before. And she uh, let me use, or well, I don't know what you call it, exhibit them in the foyer of my office, and you put on 3D glasses, and it's incredible. And uh, and no it, one. It is remar- like I've got them on now, and, <laughs> and, and it looks from without the 3D glasses, uh, it looks like a Jackson Pollock. But when you put the 3D glasses, you can see Jesus. It is. It's it's truly remarkable. It's it'd be worth millions and millions of dollars. Now listen, I just want to say something about what about what you were doing in your office in New York. Um, I was very fortunate when I first came to Los Angeles. I was taken under under the wing of, of Aaron Spelling, and and it was uh, and it was when I was doing the network, and 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 he was. What was he working on at the time? Well, the big show that he, he was working well, on. Well, he wasn't working on nine hundred two one zero and Melrose Place, and we didn't have too much that was going on. So I went to see him, and and what had happened? He had lost interest in the shows, and the shows were becoming very cartoony, and and as a result, the the, the ratings were dropping. So I went to see him and, and begged him to, to become back involved with the shows and, and to develop the story arcs and get back into the characterization, and he did. And, and the shows ran for another three years, and it was the genius that, that, that Spelling had. But, but as a result, I would go around to his place. We both smoked pipes and would sit there and, and, and imbibe. I'd drink red wine and he'd drink vodka, and I'd always have to get a car to drive me home. But he, he, he would give me these little tips, and one of the best ones he ever got, I, I, I ever got from him, when he auditioned actors and actresses, he, would, he wouldn't be in the audition session. He would watch the tapes, and he'd watch it with the audio off. Wow. And, and I said, why would you do that? He said, it's very simple. He said, a bad actor, when they're waiting for a line, are rehearsing, they're waiting for the prompt, and then they're about to deliver the line they have. A great actor will make you believe they're actually listening. And he said, and that's what I look for. And I've used that technique ever since, and it's interesting you use that technique. And I, I swear I never knew you that. You never met Aaron Spelling? Never met him. Isn't that interesting that, that, that the guys that make it in this business, and there's so many in the 20 years that you and I have been in, in Los Angeles that, that, that have kind of like flared like a meteor and then suddenly whoosh, gone. For, but the guys that have, that have survived and made it and, and enjoy it have all got these little kind of things are theirs, their techniques, what they use to discover either talent or story or whatever it is. No, it's true. It's amazing. We're going to talk a lot about your uh, stuff in that area, too. And I was just going to say, uh, since CAA is right, you can see CAA from across the way here, Creative Artist uh, Isn't Agency. Isn't it interesting? They've got a skull and crossbones flag. On the <laughs> I, I've never been up so high to see it. It's unbelievable. They'd, yeah, they'd be so obvious sen- about it, isn't it? They're sending you know, a message. Give, normally, normally they'd keep that quiet, but there it is. Skull and, and, and I guarantee it's there all year. It's not just for Halloween. <laughs> But I remember in their old place, they used to Aaron Spelling used to come in to bring in the commission checks for, oh. and they had this uh, this um, sort of tradition that they did when Aaron Spelling was Spelling was downstairs. They'd get the tiff off call, and they'd send an inter office email or call everybody, and everybody would come to the balconies of the old CAA building 
which was on Wilshire and Santa Monica. Right, right, right. And when he walked through the elevator, they would all applaud and give him a standing <laughs> ovation when he came in the building. And I can't think of anyone that would deserve it more. He, he was wonderful. Yeah. I so loved let, him to death. So let's let's go back. I want to because this this podcast is is very inspirational, and people love to hear the stories of how people start and how they go from zero zero to where they are. So take me way back to where you're growing up, and before you ever had any thought about anything in entertainment or television, what was the first thing that happened? that sort of sparked your interest or said, you said, hey, I want to do this or I want to do that. And where were you in Australia and how did it all happen? Well, I, I, I'll keep it brief because... It, Don't keep it brief. It, well, it, my dad, I was born in, a, in, a, in a, a, a city called Newcastle, which is 120 miles or 100 miles north of Sydney. And it's a steel and coal town. And my dad was, was a coal miner. He started as a coal miner when he was 14. And then by the time he was 18, he moved to the steel mills. Uh, very much like Pittsburgh, it was a, a, you know very similar kind of industry and whatever. And so you were you were poor growing up. Your yeah. family didn't have a lot of money. Yeah. And how many children in the family? Uh, I had two younger brothers. Got it. But but it was and it was interesting. Dad was a miner, and my my mum's father was a pit boss at, at another colliery, and all Scottish. That, I don't that, know what a colliery is. I'm a sorry. A colliery is a, is is a coal mine. Oh, I didn't know that. That's what that's what it's it's in, in or a pit. Okay. That's what it's known as. It's a coal mine, and uh, uh, you know we, we moved around and and uh, and I was I was uh, I, I didn't take to school at all. Well, I was uh, I was uh, a right little shit, and um, Dad was was very uh, played semi professional soccer. He'd work in the mill all week for the equivalent of twenty bucks, and he get paid twenty bucks for playing soccer. And he was a boxing champ and a wrestling champ, and and so kind of like I grew up in a family where, or in in a culture, where sport was uh, regarded as 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 a worthy kind of application for your time, and and so my brothers and I, um, who both turned into great academics, um, that that we would when we weren't kind of like going to school, uh, would would play sports. I then discovered boxing and then discovered surfing, which I thoroughly enjoyed. Anyway, uh, about 15, um, and, and me and, and the education is not, not sailing along terrifically, and I was very fortunate. I was put in a remedial English class, 4-H, which would have been around about uh, 10th grade, I think. And we were taught by a, by a teacher called Mr. Flake, who'd, who'd previous job had been in the New South Wales prison system. And so he went from prisoners to this 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 motley collection of schoolboys with whose whose knuckles would drag on the on the ground as they came into class, and and he he had this wonderful love of of, of American novelists. So so I fell in love with with the John Dos Passos's and and the and the Steinbecks and the Hemingways, and and from there to the Aldous Huxleys, and 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 it was. It was post World War One literature and post World War Two. And before that, though, you were literally—you're talking about a remedial class. You were, you were, you would say probably you were, uh, as you would, you probably joke about yourself. You were not really functioning in with your other classmates, and you were at the lowest level. But then you find these American novelists, and you. I fell in love with. I fell in love with 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 literature, and I want to write. And so I go from the lowest of the low to to, to doing English honors the next year. You and went I, to honors the next year. Yeah, and, and it was um, – uh, and the guy I sat next to did the same thing, a guy called Rowan John Carl, who became one of Australia's leading communists. Um, 
and we both went from the, the remedial class to uh, to doing honors the next year. I, I realized there was no way I was going to get to university. My parents couldn't afford it, and and my academic record was such that I couldn't get a scholarship. So, so that was it. So I had to find a job, and uh, and the options were the pits or the mills or or whatever it was. And I suddenly there was uh, this this kind of stroke of fortune that there was. I suddenly saw, and and I hated school. I really didn't like it. I liked the sports, but but that was about it. It was a careers day to, to, to discover journalism. And I thought, well, this would be great. It's a trip into the, into the city. This is fabulous. So I walked in, and it, it was in, in, back in those days in Sydney, there were two morning newspapers, two afternoon newspapers. This was an afternoon newspaper. And it was, the, the, the presses were rolling. And to me, it was heaven. I walked into the, the newsroom where there was this pall of blue smoke. It was... People were shouting. It looked like something out of the front page. Hold the presses, copy boy, blah, 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 blah. And the building is shaking and the presses are going and there's the smell of hot lead mixed with cigarettes. And and I just thought I was in heaven. So I came home that night and said to Mum, I'm going to become a newspaper reporter. Mum immediately burst into tears. And I said, why? <laughs> she said, it's a, a, you, you'll never get the job. So I sat and I she wrote. She said, you'll never get the n- job. Never get the job. It's impossible to get a job. So... I just wrote to every newspaper in Australia, um, uh, and I got a letter back. Where did you get the persistence from? Because from what you're telling me. Desperation. Desperation, Barry. It was that. Uh, Have you ever been down a coal mine? No. It's not fun. (laughs) It's, it's, uh, it's, it's, It's not. I first, I went down my first pit when I was five or six, and I actually got to like them, but, but I'd hate to work down there. So I just kept doing it, and then a guy called Leo Bassa, and as, as, as fate would have it, his great his nephew, Greg Basser, is has been in Los Angeles now for a year, and he's the chairman of, uh, of, of a big movie production company. Anyway, and so I, long story short, I got a job as a copy boy after four months as a copy boy. What's a copy boy? Copy boy runs around, gets it's like in the, it's, the, it's the equivalent of the mail room got for it. William Morris. And that, and that you that that you run around, you get sandwiches, mm-hmm. you you you'd smuggle scotch up to the to whatever, and alcohol seems to be a running theme so far. Oh, absolutely, okay. very much so. Right. It, it's uh, it, it's 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 a key part of the Bible. I found <laughs> so. I, I think that it's, the new it's, or the old it's, testament. It's both, and it, it, therefore it's spiritual to mention it. If you'll pardon the horrible pun, um, <laughs> and so I worked in, in, in and I, uh, so I became a reporter, uh, and there you did a four-year cadetship. So you, well, you went from that job, and they That's promoted you. Well, How did you get promoted? Well, I, I sat for an examination, and there was a, a lot of kids, and they had two positions, and I got one of them, and 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 it was how to write and blah 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 blah. Anyway, so I got that, and then so I I was in newspapers until I got, I was then. 17, I think 17, 18, and when I was 19, so I was a second-year cadet, and I was sent south of Sydney as holiday relief uh, to the Daily Telegraph. And so I, this is another steel town, another coal town, um, which, which, by the way, I love I, because it's, it's part and parcel of me, and I love the people. Um, and I bumped into all the people from the local television channel. Long story short, I was offered a job in, in the television channel, and I walked into the newsroom, and I saw a guy cutting film, and I fell in love. I fell in love with television then and there. So, I, tell I, me how they cut were cutting film back then. Well, it was with like with with the equivalent of a razor blade, chunk. And then what really got me? What the thing was, 
was that back then the film editor would cut the film. This is for a news broadcast. Cut it and tape it together. Cut it, tape it so that it had continuity and told a story. And then the journalist would sit down and write the script so it matched, so that, that you would start writing and so that, that at, at one minute 12 in, if there's a close-up of Barry Katz, you said, you know, theatrical impresario Barry Katz being led away in chains for <laughs> fill in the blank. Um, and, and, and that seemed to me to be the most exciting thing to do, to write to that discipline. So you had to make sense of the script. Now, of course, the script is written and the film has got to it, which, which I, I think is, is, is kind of like a step down in, 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 in television journalism, but there it is. So I was there for a couple of years, and then, then I applied for another job. And I just worked in, in newsrooms. I went from being – I, I then started do, doing a lot of stuff on camera. From there, I was – Wait, wait. So time out. So you're behind the camera and – I'm writing how, scripts, yeah. How do you decide and how do you get to the point where you want to go in front of the camera and how do you get that gig from being behind the camera? Well, in, that, in those days, the newsroom was so small. Did you have a, a face for radio back then or no, were, you, it was, were you as handsome as you are now? Thank you. Thank you and good evening. Um <laughs> It was, it, it, but the newsroom was so small. There was like five people in it, and we had to knock out a 30-minute bullet in a day. So it was, if you were there with a cameraman, you did the interview, and then you topped it. And it was simple. To, it was actually simpler to top and tail something, da 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 da, and 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 and, and here's Barry, and the interview, and then the tag, than sitting there and writing a script. So I just started doing it, and um, I had the, the greatest stroke of luck. The guy I, that, that I don't think we ever shared an apartment, but we're very close friends. His name's Norman Lloyd. He went on to become the senior cameraman for CBS 60 Minutes. He and Ed Bradley teamed up in Vietnam, and Ed brought him back to the States. So he became, and he was a brilliant, brilliant news cameraman. And, and I, I developed this technique when I was on camera of talking to Norm. So wherever I was, whatever I was doing, whether it was a report about politics or economics or police rounds or whatever, I would talk to Norm. So I developed a very conversational on-camera style as opposed to a stylized you know, end-of-sentence period, new paragraph, whatever. And so when I, I went to work for a, big, for a major network, ABC, which was sort of for then, well, still does, the Australian Broadcasting Corporation, and so I started doing a lot of stuff for them, and then, then I, I, they, they had a part of the newsroom was making documentaries. So I, I loved that. I went out and made you know eight, nine minutes, ten minute documentaries. And then a, a commercial channel approached me, and, and they wanted me to host the Australian Today Show, which I did for about three or four weeks. But I didn't. So did you do you understand how? Did you understand why you were moving the needle at that time? Like why you were passing other people that had worked longer and had been no, around longer no, no, i never thought about it it was it was just a guy say listen you you, you you're doing the seven o'clock news um but we but it was it wasn't like that it wasn't it was the newsroom was like a commune and and one day i'd be reading the news the next day i'd be in at six o'clock being chief of staff and assigning stories and then because two of the the reporters couldn't write i would write their copy for them so it was, it was never a big whoops. One of the funniest things that ever happened to me was that I was uh, out with, a friend, with my, my girlfriend uh, at a dinner party. How uh, old were you then? Oh, I don't know, 24, 25. Okay. I'm totally hammered. Totally, absolutely kind of like, thump. 
And more of the running theme of alcohol. There is indeed. And and my, my girlfriend said, "Aren't you reading the late news tonight?" And I said, "No, no, 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 no. It's my day off." She said, "I'll I'll check." So she rang the newsroom and said, "Is David there?" They said, "No, no, no. We're expecting him in any any minute, <laughs> or he might be down in makeup." So I, she's gone, "Holy shit!" Now what I should have done was say that, "Oh my God, I've uh, just undergone a do-it-yourself appendectomy." And I'm sorry, I can't come in to read the bulletin. But for whatever reason, I went in. So I went through makeup. <laughs> and, 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 like, I'm, I'm history. I'm, I'm fly-blown and legless. And, 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 and potential. Fly-blown and legless. And, and the potential of speaking Ewok is very good. <laughs> so it, it, it was, this is long the days before teleprompt. And so that you got your copy and you kind of, like, memorized it. You, you, you eyes down, eyes up, throw to the tape, whatever. And so, uh, good evening, here is the Channel 7 Elite News, um, read by Elie Sprackaroo. Um, no, it's another story. No, but, but, and, and, and here are the headlines. And then I looked down, and I suddenly thought, I can see my cheeks. And I thought, shit, this is going on in my brain, as I'm reading. In, in, in Syria yesterday, so-and-so, and so, on, so, on, so on. And my brain's saying, I can see my cheeks. <laughs> and I thought, well, that's the stupidest thing. So every time then, as I went through the bulletin, I, I, I became – have you ever looked down? You look down, you can see your cheeks. It's, it's, it's remarkable. Uh-huh. But not good when you're reading the news in front of <laughs> two or three million people. And so I get to the – and then I stupidly got to the end of the bulletin, and I thought, thank God, I've only got 30 seconds to go with the weather. And so and, – and the weather now in, in northern Victoria, there's going to be frogs and fosts. <laughs> I'm sorry, I'll read that again. There will be I got it wrong the second one. Then I said, Oh shit. And I go, Oh shit. So, so I got through the bullet. So so no, it was just it was just And you still had a job after I still that. had a job, yeah. So what's the next step in your career? Well and and then uh then I got sick and tired of being on camera. Why? Well it it, it, it happened because at a Christmas party. And I had I had um I'd uh, There's alcohol at Christmas parties. There is indeed. There, there is. There is indeed. Uh, and I've never gone to a Quaker Christmas party, but I'd imagine there's probably alcohol there too. <laughs> so I'm at this Christmas party, and this guy comes up to me, and, and he says, yeah, you've had a fantastic year this year, really great year this year. He said, I'm going to make sure you – because I was doing commercials. I was doing a lot of voiceover. I did, did voiceover for promos. I did everything. Uh, next on seven is Bewitched, followed by McHale's Navy. Um, and, and, and so I would, and so he said, you're going to have a bigger year next year. And I thought, oh, thanks very much. And so I had no idea who he was. So my boss was a guy called Jack Ma. He was a news editor, which, which I worked for. So I said to Jack, who's that guy over there? And Jack said, oh, that's Howard Gardner. And I said, who's he? He said, he's head of sales. And I said, so what's he got to do with me? He said, well, he's the one that's got you reading the news and doing the Today Show and, you know, all those advertisements that you get to do. He said, well, he's organizing them. So I thought, oh, that's nice. So I'd gone home that night to this dreadful apartment that I lived in. And Now, why were you in a dreadful apartment? Because, because it seemed like you were doing well, well at I this was. point. Well, I was. It was terrific. But I invested all my money in women and booze. <laughs> and, and, and I didn't waste a penny. I, I, I didn't waste a penny at all. It was fantastic. I'm sitting in this dreadful apartment, and and I suddenly thought, if a guy I have no idea, if he doesn't know me, and he has so much influence on my life, 
this is something that's wrong. And, and all it was was on-camera performance. So I thought, hmm, hmm. So three weeks later, I get an offer to do a job back at the ABC for a show called Sports Night, which was uh, an, a, like a 60 Minutes of Sport. Now, I had no interest because I told you I was a copy boy. Well, the way it went was the smart kids went to finance. The women always went to social. There, there was there's no other area for, 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 for women to go. Um, if you were tough, you did police rounds. If you were smart... Uh, but not that smart. You did general, and if I your knuckles and if your knuckles dragged on the ground, you did sports. So I thought, well, I'll only do it for six months, and and I said, I'm not interested. In it if I'm just a reporter. They said, no, you produce and direct. And I said, oh, okay, I'll do it and and write my own scripts. They said, yeah, you write your own scripts. So I went into sports, and surprise, surprise, I really liked it, and I liked doing what I was doing, which was doing like mini documentaries. And I liked the people I was working with because as a, as a television reporter, I've been specializing in politics and economics. And an and economic... Which would qualify you to drive any cab in Australia. Correct. And, and, and any economist can talk and, and doesn't have to prove anything. Same thing with politicians. In sports, there is a crucible of truth that, that you can say what you like, but there comes a time, like each weekend, when you have to put up or shut up. And I liked the people. I, I, I found that there was, there, was, there was a kind of spirituality about them and, and about doing the right thing and dedication and discipline and, and, and looking out for each other. And it was, there, there, was, there was part and parcel of that world that was lacking in the other parts of, of journalism that I'd been doing. And so for that, that I, I stayed in that longer than I should have because the shows then got into... Uh, Thirty-minute documentaries, and I, I would, I did, I did a bunch of stuff. I went to Russia to shoot some stuff, and I did a lot of uh, uh, adventure stuff. I, I really enjoyed it, climbing mountains and doing stuff. And then the ABC came to me and said, "We want you to do. We want to call it the David Hill Adventure Show." And 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 I said, "Well, yeah, okay, fine. I said, but I won't have the time if I'm going to go and produce and direct." I said, "Oh no, 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 no. You'll just be the front man." And, and we'll have a team of producers, directors, and we'll fly you in. You can do the piece to camera. And I said, well, I'll write the scripts. They said, oh, no, 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 you won't write the scripts. You'll just narrate the thing. And I thought, shit, I don't really want to do that. That sounds boring. And the money was unbelievably good. It was 37 cents a month. You know, it's a small country. Um, and and I, I, was, I was in two minds, and then my old boss from Channel 7 Called, called me up and said, "You want to? You want to? I hear you're unhappy. Do you want to come back to seven? And I said, "Sure." So I went back to seven to do a bunch of stuff, make docos, did comedies, uh, ended up producing this live show, and then after twelve months there, out of the blue, um, the most incredible things that had ever happened in sports. A guy who was thirty-nine, uh, his name was Kerry Packer, went out and hired sixty of the world top cricketers. And it would be like if, if a private individual owned NBC, CBS, or ABC, and they had hired what would the equivalent would be 200 NFL players and started their own league. And so, obviously, he wanted to be televised because Kerry owned a network, the Nine Network in Australia. And out of the blue, he called me up and said, I want you to be the executive producer of this. I'd never done a live production in my life, apart from studios, but I'm never on the road. So I said, yeah, why not? 
And um, so you took a job that you had no qualifications for. Absolutely none. But that's never stopped me in the past. You know, like taking a job that I've had no qualifications for, because the alternative is a coal mine. And as we determined at the age of five, it's not a fun place to be. So I I um, I uh, went moved from Melbourne to Sydney and started doing that. And I loved it. I loved producing. I, it was the, the the live thing became a bug. So I worked for Kerry for eleven years, and uh, and you brought the telecast that were probably not highly rated to something that were yeah it would, incredible. It, it all worked. It all worked. And so, when did you get the call from the states? Well, there was there was an intervening period, and and what happened? Kerry sold the network to a guy called Alan Bond that I didn't particularly want to work for. And so when my contract was up, I didn't know what I was going to do. I'd fallen in love with with uh, a woman from Nebraska, Joan. And uh, how'd you meet a girl from Nebraska, in, Australia? In a, in a helicopter over the Indian Ocean, drinking Bollinger champagne. But that is another story at the at the America's Cup. What's great here, this whole podcast, we've only been a little bit through it, is that just this running theme we know as an artist and executive. <laughs> Alcohol has a lot to do with uh, what's going on here. There's two, there's, there's two daughters I wouldn't have that I would never have met Joan. Anyway, <laughs> so, so it was that I had no idea what I was going to do. And, and my last job for, at, for Channel 9 was producing Wimbledon. I love producing Wimbledon. It is just so cool. And, and so Joan had come across. She was living in Phoenix. And, and we're having a terrific time. And my great friend Jeff Mason from uh, – he's now with ABC, I think. No, ESPN was there. So – it was like old home week, and it was terrific. And then I get a phone call, and this guy says, Mr. Murdoch wants to see you. And I said, what about? He said, uh, well, I'm not sure, but, but he wants to see you. That would be Rupert Murdoch. And, and, and I said, sure, where? He said, oh, in Los Angeles. And I said, well, if you're us a couple of tickets out to L.A., why not? So we came out here in uh, 88, it would have been. And I was staying down the road. We stayed at the uh, the Century Plaza. So take me through uh, your first meeting with him. I'm just curious. No, it only you, took three seconds because I walked into his office. Were you nervous? Because uh, you don't seem like the kind of guy who's ever nervous. Was no, you, was, no not were you, really. No, no, no. Now, did, yeah. you, did you have a vision of what you wanted to have happen before you had that I had meeting? no idea what he wanted to talk about. Okay. So you can't have a vision. All I right. All I know is that he is awesome. Like, I was... Like as much in as three I, minutes, he's awesome. No, no, no. But I knew what he'd done. Like he'd started with this tiny little newspaper in this tiny little state in this tiny little country, and he'd moved that at twenty-two. Like the story of Rupert Murdoch is unbelievable, and it's a story of you know, like all the things that 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 make like individuals great and wonderful, and it's it, it, it's charisma, but it's it's creativity, and it's. Being able to look around corners and 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 convince other people that 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 you know what to do and how to do it, and to take one little newspaper, twenty-two, where the average age on the board of directors then was fifty-six. They were saying, "Go away, kid," and he said, "No, I'm going to take this newspaper and make it great," and he did. And then one newspaper begat another, which begat another, begat another, and then he went from Australia up to across to the UK, and from the UK ended up here, and then he ended up buying Twentieth Century Fox. Hello. So it's not a bad gig for a guy who was in in his probably early 50s. And here's a guy who's the most powerful or one of the most powerful men in the world. You're meeting him. And even though before we start on the story, you told me your office is right next to his. 
and you you guys have like offices that are very modest. Now, I, you know that's fascinating to me because obviously, if you're the most powerful guy or one of the most powerful guys in the world, and you're also one of the most powerful people at the company, that to it's almost like showing the company that hey, listen, you know, it's it's all about a team effort. We don't have to be in these very huge offices so. and. Right. Which is fascinating to me well, because you think it, you'd no, want to. No, it, 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 full declaration that, that the offices that we were in in the fifth floor are being redone, and so that they're all being reduced. So, we, so even though we are in very very Spartan accommodation, it's it's nevertheless it's. But but that's that's what I love about twenty first century Fox that that we're not into in in, in in the show and never have been. So you so take me back. So you're going into his office. So I walk into his office and he says, "Good morning." I said, "Good morning." It's ten o'clock. He said, would you like to start a television channel? I said, I'd love to. Where? He said, London. I said, yeah, when do you want to be on the air? He said, next February. And I said, oh, uh, sure, okay, why not? And then he went off to take a phone call. That's <laughs> So I was, I was sent to... to <laughs> you to were sent underling. away after that. Sent, sent off to an underling, and uh, we negotiated the deal. And I said, all I want to be paid is what I was paid in Australia. I said, that's... So you didn't even have a lawyer. You negotiated your own deal. I've never had a lawyer. You've never had a lawyer negotiate a deal for you? Uh, I have in Los Angeles, but up till then, no. Wow. No, no. I just, well, it's just, I've been fortunate that, that for the last, uh, let me see, 25, 35 years, I've worked for two guys, both Australian, both media moguls, both geniuses in their own way, Kerry Francis Bullmore Packer and Keith Rupert Murdoch. Both straight up, wonderful, wonder like their their, their handshake is their bond and and all that stuff. Um, so, you, so so you launched the network in London. So I went across and, and and we started Sky, and and that was incredible battles because we were against against all odds. And it was there was a small group of us, a lot of Australians, um, and it was very much a te- huge team effort. And we took on the creme de la creme of Britain because they were launching another satellite channel called British Satellite Broadcasting, We Were Sky Television. Now, I think you should let our audience know, if, if I'm not mistaken, Sky was the first ever, like, cable satellite kind of, whatever you call it, like... Um, yeah. What did you call it back then? Uh, well, it was satellite television. Satellite it television was, was it the was, first satellite television channel, wasn't it? Right, it was. And uh, you were launching it, so yes. a visionary situation. Well, it was, it was television, but it, it, it was... That was the problem. Everyone said, oh, it's not television. I said, it is. It's just, it's television, and we have to make it good television and entertaining television. The delivery system really doesn't matter. I said, because no one looks at the back of the television set. And they were getting hung up on how it was getting there. And so we were up against um, BSB, British Satellite Broadcasting, and after a year or two years, we had a million subscribers, and they had 73,000. (laughs) <laughs> How long before you became number one and overtook that? Uh, about, it took about two years. And then, and then we got that together and we amalgamated with British Satellite Broadcasting. I then started Sky Sports with a bunch of, of terrific guys who I work with from, from BSB. We got the Premier League and we charged for it. We became a subscription service. Which and, was the first subscription service. Yes, and... and uh, uh, we started making a lot of money, and it was all good. And, and, and to do that, we had to develop a different way of covering soccer and 
and, and a sports channel and whatever. So, so that was it. Um, ESPN was up and running uh, in the States. It had a lot of, in those days, tractor pulling and Aussie rules football. I know, because they started in Bristol, Connecticut, and I was from Longmeadow, yes. Massachusetts. I remember all those days. Right. Um, so we got that up and running, and then I got a call from, from uh, the boss in, it was just about 12, 20 years ago this month, and he said, uh, we're going to have a crack at the NFL. I said, what, for Fox? And Fox had only just gone to broadcasting seven days a week. It was on for two hours. Now he started the Fox network. With Barry Diller. Yeah. And Um, so how long after that did he call you to bring sports to Fox? Well, I think the Fox network started in 88 under under Barry, and it grew and developed. Um, There were some incredibly clever people involved in that, Jamie Kellner. Uh, Bobby Greenblatt was there. Um, Who's now the president of NBC? Yeah, uh, uh, and, and like you know, Bob, he, 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 I love him to death. That when he left Fox, and this is spooling along forward, I made the shortest speech I've ever made. I said, Bob Greenblatt is the kind of guy that will all say, in the not too distant future, I knew him when, and it's and it's come to pass. Anyway, it's so true. It's yeah. so true. So one of the things about so you you took over. The initiative to bring sports to Fox. This is no, 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 no. I just, I came. So I came in and did a pitch, and I, I made like a five-minute tape to say if Fox got the NFL, which I seriously doubted, uh, that this is how it'd be covered and blah blah blah. And so we get down to the the, the Dallas Cowboys and Commissioner Tagliabue was there, and um, uh, Jerry Jones, uh, Pat from the uh, from the the Denver Broncos and what was fortunate that they'd just been in England and they'd seen our coverage of soccer and Jerry said or oh, football and Jerry said god if you can do to american football uh, football what you did to soccer so i had no idea that they'd seen you know the stuff that we'd done and so very very quickly we get we move forward and and uh, the nfl gives a contract to fox and then, well, let's. I want to get into this for a second because this is this was one of the things back then as a as a an audience member watching what was happening. I was just blown away by it, and I wanted to know because you're in these rooms, you're seeing the way things are happening, and you'd read about things, but you weren't really sure. And one of the things that I'd heard about you, and again, I didn't, I never knew you, I hadn't met you yet. But there were these stories about how important it wasn't just the NFL and getting the NFL to Fox. For you, it was getting that team of people who were going to do the pregame show and tie the interstitials together and do the postgame show who were going to be people that, that men and hopefully women would relate to, but mostly men. And I remember the story about how, um, and actually uh, told me too, along a, a after the, the fact, that Terry Bradshaw was at CBS. And he was a guy who a lot of people, you know, he wasn't, didn't, you know, wasn't a handsome guy. He would say that himself. He wasn't exactly the guy that you'd, you know, rally around and think this guy's a star. Uh, he wasn't exactly even moving the needle for CBS. I mean, I don't even think they felt that he was 
they probably felt he was their third or fourth most valuable guy. But I had heard the stories about you, like, almost just putting your fists down, like, we have got to get Terry Bradshaw. He is our guy. He's the guy that's going to be the key to this whole thing of making this successful. And people were against you. But you fought and fought to have him. Take, take me back to those that time and how that came about. Well, it's, it's, there's, there's a, Barry, there's a bigger thing, which, which I think was key. Um, in that period, I had effectively six months to A, build an engineering infrastructure or oversee the building of an engineering infrastructure, which could take up to eight games simultaneously, to build a studio, to build a set, to develop a, a logo, to write the theme music, to hire the trucks, to find a producer for the pre-game show, post-game show, to 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 the whole, get a PR department. Um, it, it was it was when I look back on it, it was a frightening thing, but I didn't look upon it as frightening. And what happened when you're faced with you have to get something done because there's no way I would, could ever ring up Commissioner Tagliabue and say, look, Commissioner, look, I'm, I'm, uh, we've, we've uh, a few things short here. I haven't quite finished the studio and I'm working on the music and uh, I'm not quite sure about the logo. And uh, how do you just... Could you, could, you, could you kind of move it back? So what I had to do, I never got a chance to second guess. And I believe in this business, the thing that kills more great ideas is the worm of self-doubt. So you get an idea at 2 in the morning, you think, God, that's great. By the time you've got to the office in the meeting, you think, oh, they'll laugh at it and they're not going to like it and there's so many things that go wrong. I didn't have that luxury. I had to go, right, that's it. The, the theme music, da-da-da, da-da-da, that came from, I was listening to the theme from Batman where I had my son up at Six Flags Magic Mountain riding the Batman ride. And I called George and I said, I love this. It's a minor and no sport is ever uh, the, the piece of music I want Scotty Shreer to write is called Batman's Got a Football Team. That came in August. I didn't. It, so you never got. How much uh, has that guy who wrote that music made so far? A fortune, uh, and and he deserves. He should send you. Every a, he should nickel. send you a fruit basket. He, he he deserves every nickel because he presented me with two tapes, and I took the the top thirty-two, put it on the second track, and that that hasn't changed for twenty years. It's probably one of the most recognizable sports themes in the country, but the point was, I didn't, I didn't have the luxury of second guessing. So it was, and the reason I hired Terry Bradshaw, was the way he walked. He he stood up from the desk at CBS and walked across to a screen, and he strutted. He had this air of confidence. I own this studio. What I'm going to say is important, and so it was like Howie Long. Howie Long's audition was dreadful. His first one. And 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 but there was something about the honesty and directness of Howie, and I said to him after he was done, I said, "Why did you do it that way?" He said, "Well, well, I did it that way because that's what I thought an analyst on television should be." He just quit the Forty ers He virtually still had number seventy-five <laughs> on the front of, front of his of, of his uniform, and I said, "No." There's a thing in television. It's a truth drug. Is that lens? It shows you who you are. Do you just get and do that thing as you are, 
as 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 Howie Long. But you and gave him it. another chance. Yeah. Why did you give him another because chance? Because I could see there was something there. Uh, Jimmy Johnson, Ed Ed Garn went and, and and talked him into doing it. Ed Gorn, another senior executive, yeah, uh, and, and, and who's lovely, and um, uh, it, it. But there was never an opportunity to go. Oh, I wonder if we've done the right thing here. Perhaps. Well, this is what I don't understand, though, and I think our audience would love to know is like, you're in charge of putting this network together of sports and all these things, but is there has somebody put together a budget? Because what happens is, is what I had heard was. These people were asking you for like astronomical sums of money, like literally six to eight million dollars a year. Oh, I know. I was... And so, and so, you're you have a budget. You're trying to put things together, and then you get Terry Bradshaw saying, "Hey, we want uh, you know, we want eight million. John Madden later on, whatever we want, eight million or ten million. Chowie Long, we want this. How? And you didn't have the luxury of you had to have these people, so you were stuck. Who? How did you go back to Rupert and say, Rupert, I don't know how to tell you this, but well, we're $50 million they, over budget? No, it wasn't. No, that, 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 that it was, of course everyone's going to, I had no idea about the agents. I'd never dealt with agents and managers and lawyers before. And, and it, was, it was the oddest thing that, that hiring a BA. Hi, my name's Bob Smith and I'm his, his, a business affairs person. No, a broadcast associate. Oh, broadcast associate. Right. Hello. What? They paid ten dollars, ten percent of the thirty-five bucks a day they're making to you. Anyway, um, it was it was uh, like who signed off on the kind of money that you had? The, you could never have expected well, it, to pay that much money for that cast. I mean, when, your 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 when, guys on the wait a second, your guys on that desk per year. When you consider the insurance and everything else and all the expenses, it could have possibly been fifty million dollars or forty million dollars a year just for those four or five guys. Yeah, but it wasn't. It wasn't anything like that. It wasn't. No, uh, it it was it was no. I, I don't that that no. They they weren't getting that. There's two ways to look at it. The first thing is when you can that that once you pay rights, we were paying, I forget how much we were paying the NFL. But the production. No, costs- but to, to think think a little bit on that because our audience has no idea what you normally have to pay for a contract for the NFL. But what I do know is whatever you had to pay, there's no way in hell you were going to make a profit that first year or your second year or your third year. You were looking at it. I think Rupert was a visionary, and he was looking at it like if we bring in sports. It'll help everything. It's like going into a Costco, like they say, and you go in to get that one thing, and you come out spending five hundred dollars. Well, the, the architects of, of Fox Sports is Rupert and Chase Carey, and and what it was that everyone thought that the play was a straight P and L, and that was advertising as opposed to production costs. Um, it wasn't. It was the the, the 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 classic story is my father-in-law uh, in Nebraska, Wilbur lived in Grand Island, and he called me up, terrified, and he said, David, yes, Wilbur, uh, Fox isn't on my cable system. I won't be able to see the football, as in, and it's your fault. And I said, Wilbur, by the time the NFL season rolls around, Fox will be on the cable system. Um, so, so what happened? Fox went from an afterthought with 80% penetration, the NFL took it to 100% penetration. 
Now, what the trade-off was, Chase then went and going from little UHF stations to huge thumping VHF stations. So we ended up, as a result of a few swaps with a new world deal, the biggest O&O group in the country. Explain O&O to our audience. These are uh, 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 individual stations in individual DMAs that are owned and operated by the network. Explain DMAs. Uh, designated market area. Got it. So it's it's uh, like the Los Angeles, San Francisco, whatever. So all of a sudden, the Fox went from an afterthought to a major player, and as a result, that that in that the, what we were able to charge for advertising spots in year one, by year three, it's kind of quadrupled. So the, it was it that 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 everyone saw what Chase and Rupert had done as a straight P&L. Oh, my God, they'll never be able to afford it. And then suddenly three years, what's happened? Fox is now huge. Duh. Take me through uh, the story of Fox's first Super Bowl and the opening to the Super Bowl where James Brown was set to open oh. the Super Bowl. Oh, my God. And it's your it's it's oh your God. it's your biggest moment. A lot of people don't know this out there, but like when a comedian tapes oh an hour special, <laughs> he shoots his hour special. Maybe he shoots one show. Maybe he shoots two shows. He gets a safety. He has one production truck. You know, some cameras, whatever. The one sound guy. When you're doing the Super Bowl, if I'm not mistaken, you have eight backup systems. Like, if there one thing breaks down, you have another, you have another, you have another. But this was David's first Super Bowl at Fox. The biggest, the mother load of everything. And he liked to be very involved in things. And sometimes he would like to go back to his roots of maybe writing the openings of things with other people. And take us back to the first well, Super I'd, Bowl opening. I'd, 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 I, I have blanked this out of my memory. It's, it's uh, 20 years of therapy has made sure that, that and now thank you for bringing it back. So all that money. Um, <laughs> thank you, Doctor Katz. Uh, I, I will now lay down on this couch and 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 contemplate your grandmother's teeth. Um, that that I had this very elaborate opening, and it was in, in in New Orleans, and and I wanted the cameras to start on on the uh, on 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 a paddle wheeler's paddle, and then zoom back and. And, and it was there in the arm of the mighty Mississippi, blah, 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 and then across and whatever. So we're doing the rehearsal. I'm sitting in the truck, and I said to Scotty, Scott Ackerson, uh, I said, hey, listen, um, have we done the first segment? And this is like 30 minutes away. Have we written the first segment? No, have we done? Have we rehearsed the first segment? And Scotty said, have you written it? And I said, you were writing it. He said, no, <laughs> you were writing it. And I thought, holy shit. 30 so, minutes before the so, Super Bowl, and it's live. So I go into where, where, where and I switch the computer on, and it was, and I, and I thought, holy shit. So I started writing, <laughs> and, and writing, and writing. And then I thought, right, well, I'll QJB and, and whatever. So I get the thing written, then I can't print it, and it won't print. And it's sitting there looking at it, and I think, God, finally, <laughs> so I ripped out and and I have for some I've taken my jacket off <laughs> and my fucking pass is with my jacket so this <laughs> asshole won't let me onto the field and so I'm I'm looking at New Orleans's finest and I'm saying our company's paid two billion dollars you better let me in so I sprint across the field just as the opening is rolling 
and, 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 and Scotty's gone, well, he'll get it done. So, so JB's sitting there, um, throwing the piece of paper. Q! So you see your hand going in the frame, or just a bit? Oh, no, we're, we're on, we're on the river, we're on the boat, you know, yeah. the, the thing coming back. And, and I had a blue shirt on, which was black with sweat. And, and JB, JB did, JB did, like I would have been a quivering mess. JB was magnificent, and and he nearly got kissed. There was nearly a deep tongue kiss between the producer and the talent when he finished that segment. He was fantastic. And he just kept his head down, read the copy, waited for me to kill him. Boom, boom, boom. And we got through it. And, and, ah, ah. Yes, thank you for that. I'd I'd totally forgotten about that. No problem. Um, And it all worked. Take me through, again, I don't know what you call it, if you called it the box or whatever you call that thing. The score at, on the corner. What is that called? Well, it, everyone's called it the fox box. Which okay, I the fox is box. I'd prefer it as the hill box. I um, prefer it as the hill box, too. This is an amazing story that I want you to tell. Well, what? Because when you, this is something that you came to the network and you had, you had used uh, over at your network uh, at Sky and also in Australia no, 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 for cricket. A, no, no, no. Well. I'd used. I'd always fiddle around with graphics. I always felt that um, because I'm not a huge sports fan, I I I I I, I like to be told what's going on. I, I I've never pretended to know anything about a sport, and because I see myself very much as a viewer, and and I live by the creed that that was dinned into me by Kerry Francis Bullmore Packer, that uh, assumption is a mother of all screw ups. Only he didn't quite say it like that. Um, and, and to me, that the more you inform the viewer about what's going on in sports, the better. And so I did a lot of graphic work about and, and uh, far more than, than was usual. And, and what, I, what I developed in Australia, the style of production, was that I believed that American sport was overproduced. And it was almost like the producers saying, look at me, aren't I clever? And so that the production was getting in the way of the sport. Whereas in, in, in European coverage, was too laissez-faire, that they'd just sit there and assume that everyone knew what was going on. And so I'd, I'd, I had developed this, this kind of middle ground of production in Australia that, I was, that, that, that had a little bit of production or a fair amount of production, but it didn't interfere with the actual game. And, and what happened with the box was that I was in London and we'd just come back. We'd been walking our dogs near Wormwood Scrubs and it was a typical Sunday in London where... The, the, the cloud cover was about seven feet and it was horizontal rain and for reasons that, that I'm, I'm not sure that I'd become very fond of a football team called Chelsea and, and this was before Chelsea became rich and powerful and it was so bad that, that you could ring up uh, the, the Chelsea ground and say what time's the game start and the, the, the girl on the phone would say when can you get here <laughs> and, and so I, I'm watching this game and I, I came in at 20 after the hour, and I'm sitting thinking, and because if it had been any other broadcaster, I, I wouldn't have thought of it. But because it was the BBC, which is so lazy, that for 20 minutes went by before they mentioned what the score was or when the game had started. And I'm thinking, if I was down at Stamford Bridge, I'd be able to see you know, the, the, what the score is and, and, and how long to go in the half. And I thought, well... That's stupid. All you need is a little box in the in the corner with the score and the time. So uh, we got the Premier League, and so I started doing it. My boss called me and said, it's the stupidest thing you'd ever seen. Take it off. 
And I'm thinking, well, maybe it's me. And, and there were two guys, Andy Melvin and, and Vic Wakeling. He said, don't take it off. It's fantastic. And I said, well, thanks. So when I came out here... Um, now, this is another thing, like Terry Bradshaw, where you had huge resistance from people. <laughs> I mean, massive resistance. People were screaming at you. I remember, I think it was George Greenberg who told me that I think he got in an argument with you because he said, look, how do you expect me to direct and get close-ups? I'm going to have this thing on the face. We can't do this. And, he would, and you had an argument. I, I think he, he screamed at you saying, listen, you know, you'll regret this. This will be the worst decision you'll ever make or something like something to that effect. Wasn't it like well, he was directing at the time or doing something? Yeah, and, and I, I could never understand it. The, the, the reaction to the, 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 the Fox box or the Hill box was it was like this is the end of motherhood, and the sun's not going to come up in the east tomorrow. And and I'm thinking this is and like all the newspaper uh, pundits said it was the stupidest thing, and all the other networks said it was stupid and make people turn off. And I'm thinking it's ridiculous. Why? It, it, it's it it helps in and it it's there as a hint, not as a statement, and it's upper left and and i remember when it was you know and i remember it was you know there was upper left and then some people did the thing across the top across the bottom they were trying all different things to copy what you were doing but to try to create their own original thing and they just couldn't do it well it was it was as my wife points out my wife the mba um says that that had i when i dreamed it up copyrighted it and then charged television channels a dollar a minute I, too, could have an office like yours. <laughs> so you did that, and everybody copied that within how long? The well, Fox took, Box or while. the Hill Box? It, 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 was, it took a while. It was um, – my greatest pleasure in life, though, about, about people copying was that when I started doing the cricket coverage the way – and, and I got it – I started to get it right. And I was working then with this brilliant director called Brian Morelli um, that – that the, the guys from the BBC who persisted with the old way of doing cricket, which I won't bore any of you with because Barry's podcast will rate crickets. <laughs> um, <laughs> I'm nodding off again. Um, the BBC said it will be a cold day in hell before we ever cover cricket like the way you do it. And so I, I got to England one day and I switched on the, 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 the BBC and there it was. They're doing coverage pretty much like like I I'd done done mine and so I rang up the head of the BBC a guy called Jonathan Martin I said how cold is it out there <laughs> I was I was stoked with that that was that was a real it was a pathetic so then so then you come up with the idea when Fox gets hockey that you're like you're watching the telecast and you're like you know I can't see the puck see the when puck. you know let's do something let's 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 light up the puck right. do something and and. You had so much resistance. I, I had heard this story, and you tell me if this is correct or not. You're in some kind of like a convention or whatever it is for hockey in Canada somewhere, and you are getting the shit kicked out of you for this glowing hockey puck. It was, again, and they were like, you know, screaming and arguing with you, telling you you ruined hockey. And you said over the microphone, if I'm not mistaken, what the hell do you guys in Canada know about hockey? Your national beer, Molson, tastes like cat piss. No, it's not quite like that. But <laughs> it was close. It was close. I got no, it, no, that, that, no. It, that never happened. No, it. Well, I did say that Molson's 
I, I don't like Molson's beer. I like Labatt's Blue, but I don't like Molson's. And, and Again, this, alcohol, no, the no, running no, theme no, of the spot. What, what, what that was, what prompted that, was that it was a reporter, and, I'd, and I had JB fronting the telecasts, and he went at me for having JB as, as a host of our hockey telecast, host of the, the Stanley Cup. You felt it was racist? Yeah, I did, uh, because he said he, he doesn't know how to pronounce Stanley. And I said, oh, come on. I said, how, how do you pronounce Stanley? <laughs> what? And, and I was positive it was that. And so I said, what the, would you know? Molson's tastes like cat's piss, which was a stupid thing to say because I never thought he'd write it, but he did. So it was in, it was in, in the, the Toronto Globe and Mail the next morning. And uh, one of our sponsors owns Molson's. So <laughs> I had to drink Molson's and like it. So there you so go. So if that had happened today, you wouldn't have a job, probably. Probably not. Well, there's a lot of things I've done during my career that I wouldn't have a job. We'll get into that in a few minutes. <laughs> so then something happens again that you work with a guy named um, Stan Honey. Honey, who actually invented GPS. Yes. And he was working on this hockey puck technology, and he worked presumably along with you or in concert with you to create something so groundbreaking. And this was something that was uncharacteristic of you. He developed the first down graphic marker in football. football. Right. And you love this. You developed it with him. It's rumored that you have a piece of the patent and you were excited about this, and you'd come up with the hill box or the fox box. You'd come up with the hockey puck. And now for the NFL, you came up with the most groundbreaking thing in the world. But true to my cold open, you did something that you normally wouldn't care about or do. You asked somebody's opinion that you respected. You talked to John Madden. No, that's not true. You didn't talk to no, John actually, Madden. Actually, the, the, no, that's not right. Because the rumor is, I just want to tell you the rumor. Yeah, the John rumor is that you talked to John Madden. You said, what do you think about this first down marker? And he said, listen, I'm a purist. You don't need a first down marker. It's not going to be good for the game. It's not going to be good for the telecast. No. I can tell them where the first down no, is. No, that's, that, that never happened. Never happened. No, because, and, and it was where the first down marker actually came from was a conversation with John in 1994 that in Microsoft Word, there was this application where you put an X and put another X and you got a line. Yes. And so I, was, I said to John, if we can get that into the, into the, the mixer, in the, the, the video mixer, that you could mark where the first down marker is, put it there, and we'll, we'll show the first down. And he got really excited about it. He thought that was terrific. So when Stan developed the, the, the glowing puck, and we started talking about other things that we want to do. The first thing was the, was the, was the down marker. And so that, that John had always been a huge proponent of it because he, 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 the thing with John is that he might be like, he mightn't have liked Frank's kind of like sending him up, but he loves football. He's like, he is really like a 17 year old. And anything that helps the understanding of football. He's a huge proponent of. Okay, so let's assume that's true. Well, so here's the story is why we didn't use it and why ESPN used it before we did. I believe CBS took it no, from no, ESPN. It was ESPN. Okay. ESPN. It was because of the cost that there was, It was only 25,000 a game. You were spending millions and millions of dollars on was, things. There was there was we were in a recession. Come on. No, 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 you? serious. It was 
there was the, I was trying to make the point about saving money, and it was it was twenty five thousand, but then you multiplied that out over the game, so it became expensive, and I didn't th- I I get I get very defensive when when there is a potential to lose jobs, and I always worried that if we weren't pulling our weight economically and we weren't making money, the sports division then, that that I would have to downsize the department, which I never wanted to do. And I always felt that that, that making uh, making a painful cut, like, and we didn't have the first down market for two years before we dis- before we said, okay, we've got the money, we can go with it. So I felt that that was, that was a, a decision made economically, not philosophically or any other reason. But knowing your career and how you've operated in your career, no, no, there's no. never been a situation that I know of where you've thought, "Okay, we're not gonna we're not gonna hire Terry because he's too much money. We're not gonna hire Jimmy because he's too. Mu- we're not gonna add a fifth guy to the broadcast because he's too much money." You've always been a guy who spent, knowing that it was groundbreaking and would no, help move not, the not needle. Not at all. Um, You're not that a, guy. A lot of people see us Scottish Presbyterians as being mean <laughs> and miserly. I prefer to see us as being thrifty. And, and I never it, think of you that way. Well, it, uh, I am. Um, it is. It is a business. Uh, that 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 it's it's not a free for all. And what I've done, especially with the, with with the puck, is that instead of us marketing it, we put the money from marketing into the development of the puck. But didn't the puck cost money again? Yeah. Well, it did. But what that did was the development that the publicity that we got. That hockey had the highest ratings ever when we had the puck and it was on Fox, and so we could pay for that. That in our you know, in in our P and L that we paid for it with what we were getting back from advertising. I guess I just feel a little bit. It's odd, but I feel bad for you in a way because. You're always this groundbreaking guy, and you help create one of the most groundbreaking things, and then other people get the credit for it, and you were the guy who came up with, to me, one of the most amazing things. And the reason why baseball, and we're in the World Series right now, you know, does maybe you know 40% of the ratings in the World Series that, that the Tampa Bay game did this last Monday night is because baseball hasn't embraced technology the way football has or hockey, how you did right. it. And, and, and they probably fought off ideas of yours uh, vehemently. Uh, and so it, it just bothers me because I know you and I see how passionate you are and to know in your mind that there was something that you came up with that didn't get on the network first well, when yeah, it could it does, have. But, but, but Barry, it doesn't matter it, it, in, in, in the overall scheme of things is that um, – you know, it was there. It was done. It worked. It was terrific. Uh, you know, it, and and it and I found out later actually that someone else, like someone else, had the idea in the in the in the eighties, and and the technology wasn't there. So who knows? Got it. All right, we're we're gonna head down the final roundup before you fall asleep here. <laughs> <laughs> By the way, I um. <laughs> I love this. This is like I am having such a great time. I know you're not, but I am. Oh, listen, this is this is right up there with a do-it-yourself appendectomy with a cold teaspoon. It's like putting some, it's putting part of your anatomy on the table and banging it flat with a wooden mallet. Is that what it's that? Well, yeah, it's called yeah, character development. <laughs> 
Um, I want to talk about a few holy shit moments. Right. Okay. Things that have happened to you over your career that if you were writing a book, they would be like the highlight chapter. Like no one would fucking believe the kinds of things that have happened here in this country with you in, in putting things together or, or some kind of thing at a broadcast that happened or something that nobody knows that would be really interesting to our audience. Wow. Um, I, I, it's very hard for me to do that. that, that, that and, and the reason is, is that I tend not to dwell on the past. And, and even though I am, I am a, 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 an amazingly keen student of history, that, that I, I, and it's part of my, my approach to television. And I believe television has got to be, has, has got to be, uh, it has to fit its audience. And as the audience changes, I'll, I'll tell you a story about Aaron Spelling. That, that um, and, this, and, and Aaron had, oh, there's the other guy who had a huge influence on me was Bernie Brillstein, but uh, uh, huge influence on me too. Yeah. Well, we used to. Yeah. I thought. I thought he was so one of was, the greatest managers of all time. Represented well, Lauren Michaels and John Belushi and hundreds of other amazingly talented people. Produced so many shows. And, well, that's why I was so fortunate. The two of them, I kind of. That was my PhD in television. Aaron Spelling and Bernie Brillstein. So the thing with Aaron, and we're sitting. This is one of the Thursday afternoon things, and and he said, I've noticed you've made a few changes to your Sunday morning show. I said, oh, yeah. He said, why do you do that? And I said, well, Scott and I sit down and we talk about the show and how we're going to change it and whatever. And so that, that because it has to be fresh and it has to be refreshed and it can't be the same old. And I said, so if you look at the show, and it's probably only six years into its life then, um, this is Fox NFL Sunday. And I said, but if you look at, at show year six, it, it seems the same as year one, but it's not. And he said, you know, he said, that's really important. He said, you weren't brought up in this country. He said, but if you were, you could have walked down every street in America on a Saturday night at 7 o'clock on a summer evening when the windows were open and the tune you would hear would be Little Bubbles. And he said, that was a show by Lawrence Welk and it was top of the pops for 20, 30 years. And then suddenly it ceased. Its audience died because he didn't, the producers didn't make any changes. And he said, and the important thing about whatever you're doing is to continually change it because your audience changes and you have to keep up with the audience. Yeah. So when he was doing things like JR, he was always aware of the world around him. It's fascinating you talk about that because one of the things that I think has always been the biggest challenge for the NFL. One of the most difficult challenges I see that I, I honestly, it's weird, like I have this this visceral reaction to how executives like yourself feel when you're going down a path. So you got Terry, you got Howie, you got Jimmy, and you have three guys who are probably closer to 65 than they are 45, and certainly not close to 35. And what's happening now, television is a young person's game, it's a youth game. The technology, everything you're doing with it is making it like a video game. It's like people in baseball are saying, you got to reduce baseball. you got to cut it down to two hours. you got to cut down these innings, do whatever. Football is three hours, three and a half. Nobody cares. 
But you have these guys who've been there for 20 years. You've been number one. It's the number years. one show for 20 years. But you know that there's going to be a day where slowly or all of a sudden the audience is going to be like, you know what? I love these guys, but they're as old as my grandfather now. Maybe I'd like to see something new. It's the kind of thing that NBC is doing, and I'm not saying it's right. When they took Leno off the first time, they thought, we're going to take Leno off. He's number one. We'll put Conan in. And he's younger. The audience will be there, whatever. Didn't work. They made that mistake. They brought Leno back number one immediately. Now they're doing again. Leno's number one. They're taking him off. He doesn't want to go off. They're bringing Jimmy Fallon, young, youthful, charismatic. You have an advantage. I know what you're probably going to say is that we have a five-person team there, so I can sort of interchange one at a time whenever I have to, and that's why you brought on some new people or whatever. And the JB situation, which we could talk about, but we don't have enough time about how he was lost and went to your competitor, um, which didn't affect in the ratings per se as much as maybe it could have. How do you deal with the fact that you know your team is getting older, you're still number one, but you know in your mind someday, whether it be next year, the year after, changes have to be made, and how do you figure out how to make those changes when you're number one? Well, it's first of all, it won't be me making that decision. That 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 is uh, that's up to to uh, Eric Shanks, who's, who runs Fox Sports now. Um, but what what's happened with that show with the addition of of uh, Michael Strahan, so the show's become younger, and also JB leaving us was actually turned into a huge stroke of fortune because you know it's a great shame to lose lose him because he was very much part of the family. But then I knew that Kurt Menefee, who I first saw down in Dallas, and then he went to WNYW in New York, and then he was working as a caller for MSG and doing some work for us. <coughs> I knew that Kurt was a fantastic studio host, plus the fact he could write. Kurt writes like an angel. He's a very, very good writer, and, and he used and, and, and knows football inside out. And so the, the, the addition of Kurt and Michael have, have visually kind of dropped the age thing. But don't forget, there's a full generation of Americans who, to whom football, the football authority is Terry, Howie, and Jimmy. So... I think that they've probably got another five, ten years at least in them. Got it. And if you talk to Jimmy, another 40. (laughs) (laughs) Tell me a television personality on another sports network or broadcast that when you watch him, you just say to yourself, you grit your teeth and you just say, Jesus, I wish I had that person. Well, it's it's the guy who, who when I watch... I wish was working for Fox Sports. He he was on ESPN. He's now on uh, uh, ABC's Good Morning America. Is Josh Elliott? I think that that his performance, the way he addresses camera, the way he phrases his pieces of camera, is just wonderful. And and he's the guy I wish was working for Fox. I think I think Joe Buck is is a fabulous caller, but I love Al Michaels. And I think that ours, but I've always felt that Al, that, that Joe was ours. Joe started with us when he was 26, and 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 we took, you know, we we took a punt on him, and and he he delivered far more than I ever would have expected. 
Who's going to replace Tim McCarver? That's that's a question for, that you're going to have to talk to Mr. Shanks about. Um, I, I think, if you had your choice, I, I well, I, I, Eric and I were talking about it this afternoon. I think that that for the first two games, Tim has been like I loved him. I think Tim is one of the great broadcasters I've ever worked with. There's there there is there is three guys who I will forever be appreciative of working with. One is John Madden. One is a guy called Richie Benno, who who was a cricket, great cricket uh, player plus plus broadcaster, and Tim McCarver, and and Tim McCarver, because he first guesses, and I have heard him do it so often, that that I I just listen to him in awe, and it's so easy. He's got the twang, <laughs> and it's just it, like I just love him to death, and I can sit and listen to Joe. And it's like the great thing about Joe is that 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 when he works with Timmy, oh, I apologize, Mr. McCarver, I can't call you Timmy, Tim, and 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 with Troy Aikman, and that he will throw something in, and Timmy will go, <laughs> and it's just fantastic, <laughs> or, or or Troy will chuckle, and so and 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 Joe has so much humor in him that it's just it it, it he brings out the best in both, but I think that Tim. That, and, and I fully expect that when he goes out, it's going to be it's finding his replacement is going to be really tough because whoever we find, it, it, there will be someone. People don't like Tim McCarver. There's the Tim McCarver haters out there, and I think, are you listening to the same guy that I am? I think he's wonderful, and the way he he tells the game and explains it, he's just fantastic. Yeah, I love I love Tim McCarver. Okay, we're heading in the final round up here. Tell me your biggest failure ever. Oh, there's been a lot. Um, the one that you you just you oh, just the, had to pick yourself up. You oh, just the, took the, a the beating. Worst, the worst the worst thing I've ever done. It was um, besides this podcast. Beside the podcast, yeah. This it was it was I, I got this bee in my bonnet. Um, it was about NASCAR, and that I didn't think that we were doing enough to work with the tracks. And First of all, I just want to give you credit for NASCAR. You came up, you know, there were like three different networks doing NASCAR, and you had the vision to go into NASCAR with Fox, and you also your graphics and everything there, and you took NASCAR to heights that it had never been before. So I, I think I, I forgot to give you credit for that, and that was incredible what you did with that sport. Well, it, we lowered the cameras, and we changed a bunch of things around, and we put GPSs, and so Stan Honey had invented. Anyway. So I, I kind of woke up one morning and I thought, God, we got to be doing something. And it was during it was during the 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 incredibly high point of American Idol. And so I had this vision of Saturday night at the track, and there was two thousand people there, and Speed Channel was doing this kind of like Idol ripoff. So I said, right, this is what we need to do. So we got to get it done. Got to get it done. So I gave it to George Greenberg, poor George, and we started doing it, and the temperature was 27 degrees. It was horrible. So we did a series uh, of very bad acts in freezing temperatures with Carissa Thompson and Michael Waltrip manfully trying to breathe some life into it, and it was just horrible. <laughs> no, it was just... it was just, Mixing American and then, Idol and, and NASCAR. Then, yeah, no, and it was... And and I thought, what would have happened had I not been so 
precipitous and, and said, get it going now, and waited till summer. And if we'd done it in May, it might have worked. But I, I killed it off stone dead. It was, it was, it was, that was really bad. Wow. Tell me your proudest moment ever in your professional career. I think the proudest, the, the, what I'm most proud of was the Super Bowl after 9-11. And it was down in New Orleans. And it was, I had it organized, so I was ha- having a huge party. I'd got them to move Mardi Gras forward, and, and I was going to put the boys. You know you're powerful when you move Mardi Gras forward. Well, it was only a couple of days. And it was. Did you have John Madden make the call for you? (laughs) (laughs) Bringing security guys out there? And I was going to have the boys on this low loader kind of, and the crews either side. And I was going to, it was, I was going to get the the guests to step on and be interviewed and then go. And then 9 11 happens and everything changes. And. It was the uh, it, w- it was an incredible night. You know, one thing I just just one second because uh, I want you to talk a little more about that. One thing I don't remember, and our audience probably doesn't remember, how did Fox Sports deal with sports that weekend after nine eleven? What happened, and how how was that? When did sports like? What were the, what were the boardrooms and the decisions and the well, meeting well, rooms was, to talk well, about and it, how to it, handle things? It was I, I suddenly became it was interesting. I became uh, I because the main sports that were on were baseball, NASCAR, and, and and football, and so I became kind of like the 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 exchange between the three. And George Pine, who was then in charge of marketing from NASCAR, would call up, and and Tim Brosnan, who was marketing of, and and Roger Goodell, who was then. I think number two or number three in the NFL to Commissioner Tagliabue. And so um, the decisions were made. But what I did as a result of that, that I got the three of them together at dinner, and they'd never met. And I said, look, I, you know, I work closely with the three of you. You three have got to be able to pick the phone up and talk to each other in moments of, of, of national emergencies to work out what sports are going to do. Because sports is I, that, that what I felt that sports should have continued. Because by by cancelling sports, we're showing them that we were weak, which which I was opposed to. But one of the biggest things that um, Rod, I forget who was the commissioner, Pete Rozelle, I believe one of his biggest disappointments was after the Kennedy assassination that they had football the following weekend, and he felt that he made a mistake in doing that. So you disagree with that philosophy? You feel like? You know they should have had the games. Well, no, and I'm not I, saying I, no, I'm not no, saying no, no, it's no. wrong I think or right. Two right. different things. I think the assassination of a president is a period of national mourning, and and like I can remember as a kid in Australia hearing that President Kennedy had been assassinated, and it was a cathartic experience, and I can still remember exactly where I was, how I felt, how I rushed into the kitchen, told mum and dad, and it was it was it was a time of mourning in the hill in the hill in the hill family. Um, uh, and but, but but I felt that with with a terror attack, which was deliberately aimed at disrupting the American civilization, that by canceling, it was playing into the terrorist hands. So I was very much a proponent for business as usual, very much like Churchill in World War II: keep calm and carry on. Interesting. So that was that was my takeaway. But but so what we had to do was totally changed the Super Bowl. And um, so on 
it was on the final game of the World Series, Yankees against. Uh, no, actually, this is quite an interesting. The story. Yankees against Arizona. That yeah, year? the the, uh, the the Diamondbacks. I was there at that seven. Well, game. I was Roger Goodell, probably because Paul of Tagliabu, you. Roger Goodell, Paul Tagliabue, Jim Steig, and every security person. Like there were so many security guys, because don't forget at that stage a book had just come out or a movie about a terrorist attack on the on the U.S which started with a dirty bomb being hidden in a white van in the production area at of a the television super- compound at the Super Bowl. I remember that movie. So, so we went, we went over, the, over the, the, the top and bottom and whatever. And so when we'd done the security check, I sat down with, with Roger Goodell and, and Commissioner Tagliabue and Jim Steak. We started talking about the tenor of what the Super Bowl should be. And Paul had this... And Roger had this um, uh, concept of Aaron Copeland's Lincoln portrait as being the musical theme, because Copeland had written that days after the Japanese attack on Pearl Harbor, which you could equate to what had happened with 9/11. And so Jim Steig and I—I I was staying in a room at, at the hotel—and so Jim Steig and, I, and Jim, there was a Monday night, a Sunday night game on. And so Jimmy was going to come. Jim did all the Super Bowl organizations. So so I ordered a couple of bottles of red wine and got a whiteboard in and a marker, and away we went. So Jim was still out, and so that night, because of the attack, the Emmys had been moved, and Ellen DeGeneres, God bless her, was the host. And Ellen came on and said, don't bother watching the baseball game because we will put up the scores of the baseball game, so you don't need to watch the baseball game, just watch the Emmys. So whatever you do, don't watch the baseball game. I lost it. I rang up our master control, and I said, is there a, uh, is that Chiron down the back still, still there? And Jack Simmons said, yeah, why? I said, fire it up. I want you to put the, I want you to put the, 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 the Emmy winners on the broadcast. <laughs> I said, do it. So and, and 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 what prompted the idea was Ellen said, and they won't be telling you who who wins this best supporting actress award. The <laughs> entire audience goes, that I'll show you. So I said, Jack, you've got to get the best supporting actress. So there's Tim and Joe and whatever. And suddenly up comes Super Emmy Awards 2002. Beatrice Smith, best supporting actress. <laughs> So, so, so Jim Steig says, and I'm on the phone to Jack. Okay, and I'm switching between the two. Get, and he said, "What on earth are you doing?" I said, "I'm putting up the Emmys." Wow. So World War Three happened, and some poor guy from CBS, uh, Jack said, "Oh, there's there's this guy from CBS wants <laughs> to talk to you," and he's called up and he said, "Stop doing it," and I said, "You started it." <laughs> and, he's, and, he, and he said something really silly. He said, no, 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 no. No, that was just Ellen saying that. And I said, pal, I know that in the Emmys and the, and the Oscars, every word is analyzed and put down. You wrote it. And you said that don't watch the baseball. And I said, so to me, that was a declaration of war. And I've accepted. <laughs> so, boom. So no one spoke to me for about... And then what happened, which was even worse that I didn't realize... And I've never been to the, invited to the Emmy since. Was that that that, that, that 
You got to start broadcasting no, the no, Emmys. No, you got to no, get the no, rights no, to the no, Emmys. Actually, that's that's not correct. I'm lying because Fox does it every every three years. But it was because the 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 the, the baseball game was going to the West Coast, so the and, and it was a delayed Emmy broadcast. Anyway, so what we did we we brought down the uh, for that telecast we brought down uh, the Boston Pops. Uh, I got permission from the the family, the Copeland family, to to bridge the. He he wrote two great symphonies. Or he wrote, wrote a lot of great symphonies, but one was Fanfare for the Common Man with that fantastic open. And so I, I stitched Fanfare for the Common Man, first thirty two onto the 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 the, the uh, Lincoln portrait. Renée Larone produced this wonderful piece, and we got all the, the presidents and Mrs. Reagan to voice it, and. Uh, 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 Worms uh, produced this fantastic piece about the Declaration of Independence, and we got U two and and behind U two they did Streets of Shame, with the names of everyone that had been killed, and and, and why it was so so proud to me because to me it was a pen of praise to my adopted country, and it became it 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 and, and by reading the Declaration of Independence, and I which I felt was one of the finest pieces of articulation of civilization I'd ever read, that I'd always had a green card up to them, but then I, then I went through, I became a citizen. And it was, uh, so, and, and, and what I wanted to do with the telecast, I realized how important the telecast of the Super Bowl was to the world, to, to people overseas, to sports fans overseas. And I wanted to make everyone aware that everything was normal. God was in his heaven, all's right with the world. We've had this great tragedy We've been attacked by these cowards, and yet everything moves on. Nothing's going to stop this civilization. So that's what I was most proud of. Proud of. Wow, that's incredible. Okay, last question. It's a two-part question. Tell me the advice you would give, um, firstly, to, let's say, um, a young artist, uh, young person in broadcasting school, somebody who has the dream, like a, you know, a dollar and a dream. They want to be a, a broadcaster. They want to be an executive. They want to be somebody who, you know, firstly talk about like somebody on camera because you've run into so many people and you've seen so many audition tapes and so many tryouts. Like you talked about Howie Long. So what advice would you have for somebody who wants to get in front of the camera but just is, you know, doesn't know how to get there and move the needle to get that that stage? And then tell me your advice for like a young executive who's worried about the coal mine or worried about the studio apartment or worried about not having any money or if they're ever going to make it and what it will take for a young executive out there in any job or any capacity to get to the point where they passed so many people and they moved the needle so much and gotten to the stage where you are at this point in time. Well, first of all, I've never seen myself as an executive. When I, when when HR gets me to talk to people, I always claim that I'm I'm an accidental executive, which I am. I never see myself as an executive. I see myself first and foremost as a, as a television producer. That's what I do. When 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 I fill in applications at what at, at the at going to various countries and it says occupation. I'm I'm a TV producer. That's what I do. So That's when you filled job. out the Costco uh, uh, form, a TV producer, TV producer, absolutely. Got it. Um, I, and I am a proud member of Costco. <laughs> and 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 it's uh, yeah. Um, it, 
if you try and become an executive, I don't think it's ever going to happen because uh, if you're worrying about being being an executive, um, that that it gets in the way of what your job is. The, the reason why people get promoted is because that their bosses can see what they're doing is really, really good. And and if someone does something really well, the, the underlying promise is they can do a whole bunch of other things really well. And so it's that, that as you get through life, it's if you if you want to want to become a boss, uh, I, I think that that you're inevitably bound to fail. That you should be more worried about being the best that you can be in your cho- if if you're a copywriter or if you're a, uh, if if you're making coffee. You know, it doesn't matter. You just be the best that you can be. I think I think the thing that gets in the way is people take themselves too seriously, and I think that that's a huge problem because if you take yourself too seriously, that that every slight cuts even deeper. And and every that 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 what is is meant totally innocently can be seen as a put down, and you start becoming infuriated and 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 feeling the world's again you, and so that changes your whole mood. And when you're in front of camera, be conversational. Um, what I say to my guys, well, they're not my guys anymore because I've now moved out of the sports division. But when I talk to, they'll my always nurses, be your guys. Oh, thank you. What what? I'll I, always be your guy. Oh well, thank you, Barry. I'm, <laughs> I, I'm starting to well up now. Um, it's it, it it gets back to my experience with Norm Lloyd, the cameraman, and it's if you can't visualize to whom you're broadcasting, that you're not broadcasting properly. And if you're a producer or a director or an announcer, that in, you, you're not just shooting signals out, as Scott Ackerson likes to say to Pluto, they're going to someone. So, so I say to the announcers, you're not just talking into a microphone. You're talking to someone. So visualize that person. Is it your mom? Is it your dad? Is it your wife? Is it your husband? Is it your kids? Is it your next-door neighbor? Visualize where they are. They're sitting down comfortably in a sofa. They've, they've, they've got an adult beverage or they've got a coffee and they're watching. So talk to them. And if you're doing the show, you've got to be aware of who you're doing that to, who you're producing that show for. And so be aware of how they're going to watch and, and, and what they need to enjoy the show. So the, the, it's the art of visualization in, in broadcasting, I believe, is totally important. So that when you're starting off being, do, working on camera, it's not, you're not looking at a piece of glass. You're visualizing your mom or your dad or your best friend or whatever standing by, and you're having a conversation with them because the essence of television is a human being speaking, talking to another human being. It's that simple. And and if you can't master that, you should go into something like quantity surveying. <laughs> this has been really amazing. And one of the things that I get from you all the time and uh, is gold because you always tell the truth. You're always full on. You don't care what anybody thinks. You're a risk taker. And if I were to say three things that sum you up, that's very nice of you. I don't, I'm, I'm not used to this effusive compliments. I'm, well, I'm quite touched. Well, I'll tell you three more things when I think of you. Assume nothing. Yes. Less is more. Yes. And be cool. The three, that, that, to me, they are the three commandments of a successful television broadcaster. Uh, going back to Kerry Francis Bournemouth-Packer, assumption is the mother of all screw-ups. Uh, Television 
or anything in life, if you try and do too much, you inevitably screw something up uh, and be cool. Because if you're cool, you make good decisions. If you become hot-headed, you don't. So to me, they are there are three rules, not only of broadcasting, but life. Well, this has been amazing, totally incredible, uh, very inspirational. Uh, I, it's been an honor having you. Thank, well, thank you, you so much for doing this. For all of you out there, uh, this has been another episode of Industry Standard. As always, if you like the show, please tell all your friends. And if you don't like the show, tell all your friends. <laughs> They say it's the glory I'll scream your name and Put you on shoulders Walk you to fame You'll get all the money Drive that fancy car All the people love you Cause you're going for Life is for the dreamers They have all to gain It's never quite over So it all feels the same You pick your own poison Dig your own grave Down in the valley A fortune Thank you for listening to Industry Standard with Barry Katz. If you'd like more info on our schedule of new episodes, which will be available for download every Monday, or how to reach Barry through Twitter, Facebook, or email, go to barrykatz.com. Before you leave, please take a moment to subscribe to our podcast. Leave a comment and rate it, even if you think it blows. Thank you for your support, and have a great day.